Smartcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. At Baker's, no matter where you order free pickup, you get the same great deals as you'd get in store. So you can save when you order during band practice or at the dog park or wherever start your cart with the baker's app and save from wherever today baker's fresh for everyone 35 dollars order minimum restrictions may apply subject to availability get more ways to save at the buy five or more save one dollar each sale just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card baker's fresh for everyone blog talk radio hello And welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show, featuring Jason Zook. In uncertain times, we must change our focus and priorities. This show will highlight social justice issues with the goal of expanding minds and increasing unity, love, and mutual respect for ourselves and our planet. We support the Black Lives Matter movement, Our show aspires to promote social spirituality, which simply means that by coming together, we can solve any of our problems, including the goal of bringing an end to all forms of hate, discrimination, bias, or oppression. We must protect our environment, reform our criminal justice system, and protect every citizen from police brutality. When we come together, it becomes possible to bridge the gaps that plague our society and divide us from within. We the people means everyone. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show. This is Jason Zook. It's with great pleasure that I have a returning guest on the show today, Bridget Shea, to discuss her new book, Cultivating Your Microbiome, Ayurvedic and Chinese Practices for a Healthy Gut and a Clear Mind. In this holistic guide to cultivating a healthy microbiome, Bridget Shea explores digestive functioning from the perspective of Western medicine and traditional medicine. She examines Ayurvedic principles on digestion and constitution types and reveals how, in addition to describing what we call the microbiome, traditional Chinese medicine has long recognized the importance of an abdominal organ that modern science has only recently acknowledged, the mesentery which are the tissues that connect and support the internal organs. Bridget is a licensed acupuncturist, energy healer, writer, public speaker, and wellness educator who's been practicing traditional modalities for more than 20 years. Her private practice involves the integration of Chinese and Ayurvedic medicine, and she teaches workshops on energy medicine and healthy breathing. She's also the author of Handbook of Chinese Medicine and Ayurveda. It's a great pleasure that I welcome Bridget Shea to the show. 
Welcome to the show, Bridget. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. I am excited to talk about your new book. I wanted to start our interview by asking you if you could explain to our audience what the microbiome is and how it's important to our daily lives. Sure. So the microbiome is basically all of the microbes, and those are viruses, bacteria, funguses, yeasts, um, archaea, anything like a little critter that lives on or in your body. And the thing that's so profound about the microbiome is that it's such an important part of our physiology that science is, there are a lot of researchers who are classifying it as its own organ. They call it the microbial organ. And um, it influences everything from training our immune system uh, to recognize friend from foe as an infant to regulating inflammation. Um, it helps regulate our moods and what we're feeling and therefore how we're thinking. So it is very important um, for our, not only our ability to thrive, but to, to feel good and to survive. And I guess what I want to ask you, because we're living in this post-COVID era <laughs> with this pandemic and everything that's going on, I want to ask you this. What could our listeners do as they listen to this interview and learn about the microbiome and Ayurvedic and Chinese practices? What do you think they should do as they listen to our episode to kind of tune into this and prepare themselves what they can benefit from reading your book? So the book contains a lot of really helpful practical information on what we can do to, in fact, cultivate our microbiome, which is the title. Um, and it's using the wisdom of ancient Chinese and Ayurvedic or ancient Indian medicine and combining that with the latest research on the microbiome from the Western scientific community. And interestingly enough, a lot of some of the really fascinating studies that have been done have actually validated the concepts from the Eastern medicine tradition that we didn't really have adequate descriptions for in Western terminology until now. And it turns out that a lot of things from Eastern medicine theory actually are talking about the microbiome and its functions in our, in our bodies and on our minds. And so um, you asked, what can we do like regarding the microbiome? It, it sounded like specifically to COVID you wanted to know. And um, yeah. from, from, it, from an ancient Eastern medicine perspective, the very first thing that they say to do is to avoid the pathogen to begin with. So I don't think we think about that. We're thinking about like, what do we do when we come into contact with it? But really the number one thing to do is to avoid it. And so those are really common sense solutions that we already know about. Proper mask wearing, um, avoiding people who are sick, staying in when you're sick, and washing your hands regularly. Um, so these are all things that we can do to avoid it, not going into areas, not putting ourselves into risky situations where we know, um, as the CDC has just admitted, that um, can be concentrations of aerosol spread, like indoors and crowded areas, restaurants, et cetera. 
And so, um, so that's the first thing. And then the second thing that we can do is to recognize where we can kind of clean up our own act. So from an Asian medicine perspective, um, our bodies are all very specific um, entities that have um, that fit into categories of constitutional types. We all have our own individual mind-body constitutional type. And although the, those types can be categorized very generally, they also are very unique. So every single one of us is our own um, specific mind-body constitutional type. And interestingly enough, everybody has a very specific individualized microbiome type as well. So that everyone's microbiome is so personal to them that there is no one else on earth with it. It's like everybody has their own fingerprint, everybody has their own microbiome. And so what we wanna do is at least know what our constitutional type is. We need to know ourselves well enough to know what things are good for us and what things aren't. And by avoiding the things that aren't good for us, and in general, that can be eating really late at night, staying up late, getting up late, um, over-exercising, not exercising at all or enough, eating a lot of processed foods, having an irregular schedule. These are all things that can contribute to a disruption in any of the constitutional types. And then once you know your constitutional type, you can see what activities and what foods and drinks are best for you. Um, and from there, that way you are cultivating your own individual microbiome. And by doing so, you are creating a less habitable environment for pathogens. Probiotics. I want to talk to you about probiotics in the sense that I know that's a popular terminology in our society. And I wanted to see if you could explain the importance of that term and how it applies to your own independent, independent research with microbes in the body. Okay, so probiotics are basically the actual microbes that researchers have found to be beneficial to our physiology. So one example would be lactobacillus, because lactobacillus is a microbe that has a lot of beneficial functions in the body. Um, and so they've encapsulated lactobacillus, and then you can take that and um, as a capsule, and it can help to, like some people take it for um, relief of occasional like diarrhea or constipation or issues that they may experience as side effects of taking antibiotics, for example. Um, but there are a lot of probiotic companies out there, and um, really there are so many microbes in the gut that we don't know what they all are yet and what they all do and how they all interact with one another. So although a probiotic can be a very good supplemental short-term fix for somebody who may be having, say, recurrent yeast infections or any of the other gastrointestinal things I just mentioned, it may not be the end-all be-all because there is much more to the picture than just the one or 10 or even 20 strains that may be in the capsule because there are literally trillions of microbes in your body. So with probiotics, what happens is when you take them, they are transient. So the probiotic 
capsule will open up in your system and the little microbes will come out and they will help to regulate your gut in a way that can help to balance out digestive issues. Um, and a lot of times they'll be dead by the time they get to where they would actually be colonizing. They don't colonize when you take them as a pill right now. Anyway, they haven't figured out how to make that happen, but um, they pretty much go right through you. And on their way through, um, there is some benefit to our immunity from taking them, for example, because there are um, microbial products that they emit that the body responds to, and it's beneficial for the immune system. That Again, that's certain strains and in, probably in certain people. So, um, so I, I do recommend probiotics for people sometimes, but I really feel like the best way to cultivate your microbiome is to actually um, know your own system. And, and there are various things that you can do to help to feed the probiotics that you already have in your gut, for example. So those probiotics in the capsule, they're actually the, also the microbes that you have in your gut. So you have your own probiotic factory in your body. So what I encourage people to do is to eat more prebiotics. And those are foods that will feed the microbes that are beneficial in the gut. And those foods are basically anything that contains a lot of fiber. So pretty much every food can be some sort of food for our gut microbes. But foods that contain a lot of fiber, like plant substances, fruits, vegetables, they are the best foods for the microbes in the gut, grains and beans and vegetables and whole fruits. So you're, I like what you're saying. You're saying treat it the, health, the natural way by what, what foods and what diet you utilize and how you it's, – it's, it goes back to that old saying, what you put in, you get out. <laughs> And uh, yes. is that what you would say with reference to creating your own bi microbiome is to, to change your eating habits and ingest foods that are the best tailored to create this type of system in the body to, I guess you'd say, maximize its usefulness, its efficiency? Correct. Yes. And the way that they're determining at this point what a healthy microbiome is, is to have a diverse microbiome. So you want to have a diverse diet as well to help cultivate that diversity in the microbiome. So we don't want just one strain of lactobacillus. We want potentially hundreds of strains or more than that, because if the body takes a hit, whether it's a regimen of antibiotics or some kind of a trauma that affects the system or um, you're not sleeping well at night or you're regularly crossing time zones, or you're under a lot of chronic stress. These are all things that can disrupt the diversity and the health of the microbiome and then of your whole body in general. So if we start off with a really diverse microbiome, then the microbes that end up getting damaged, the colonies that get damaged as a result of, say, that course of antibiotics, will have other colonies that survive and they will help kind of pick up the slack until that those microbes that got damaged can rebuild themselves in your system. 
And it takes time. I want so like a course of antibiotics can take six months to a year for the body to recover from in, in terms of the microbiome. And think about it, people use antibiotics all the time with infections right. and whatnot. And it may not recover too. It may change. So sorry, go ahead. It may ahead. change your body. I don't know. That's okay. It may change the microbiome. You, per, per, yeah. It, it will change it personal, uh, permanently in the body. The permanently, composition of yeah. It, that's the microbes. what I was going for. Yes, it can. <laughs> no worries. It can. Yep. Uh, let me ask you this. Uh, microbes are something that we all hear about. And I know I'm not a microbiologist, so I'm kind of coming from most of my audience probably isn't either. But I want to ask you, when you look at microbes, a lot of people will think of these microscopic entities. What's the difference between the microbes mm -hmm. that exist in your gut versus the ones that are outside of your body? Not a whole lot of difference, you know. to be honest with you. There might, really? It's really um, environment dependent. Yeah, there are certain microbes that exist in one part of the gut that won't exist in another part of the gut, for example. There are, they did a study on people's belly buttons and um, they cultured the belly buttons of so many people and found that there were, there were microbes that would only survive in like those really hot um, those really boiling hot springs where you'd think nothing could live, a couple people had those in their belly button. Um, there are different microbial communities all over the body. So the microbiome in your armpit is going to be different than the microbiome in your mouth. So, it, and, and the, the functions of the microbiome in the different part of the bodies are all in the different parts of the body are all different as well. And so we're constantly interacting with the outside world and we are seeding the outside world with our microbes and we are being seeded from the outside with microbes. And this is one of the um, benefits of what's called forest bathing. Um, being outside in nature, we are exchanging all kinds of chemicals and gases with the trees and the ground, for example. And one of the things that we're also exchanging are microbes. So we may be getting through inhalation microbes from the flora and fauna around us that help to benefit our immune system, perhaps. Um, so that we're in a constant interface with the outside world. We, and that's one of the premises, the major premises in the book is that um, because it was a huge hit for me to recognize that my body is only half human because we're about half human cells and the other half of us is microbes. So we don't, we're only about half human. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I would never think it, that we have these but, foreign entities in our body that aren't from the human body. <laughs> When the research first started to come out, they were saying we're about 10 to 1, so one human cell for every 10 microbes. But as it got more sophisticated and there was more research that was done, they found that it was about half and half. So, yeah, we're about half and half. And really, the environment that we live in, the microbiome in our home has something to do with, with the microbiome in and on our bodies. Um, there are researchers that are doing studies on the microbiomes in specific environments, and they're trying to actually change the architecture of spaces like hospitals and things like that 
to help actually cultivate the microbiome inside that space so that there are more beneficial microbes. Um, and whether or not you have pets uh, will diver diversify and therefore make your microbiome healthier. Um, it's better to have animals. They find that people that live on farms, that grow up on farms, have uh, more diverse microbiome. So it's, um, it's very interesting. We are not separate from nature. We are a part of it and an intrinsic part of it that we cannot be separate from. And if we were, we couldn't survive. If we were completely sterile and had no microbes, we, we really could not be in the world for more than a few moments. Uh, let me ask you this. In terms of everyone that's been sitting inside a lot and social distancing and quarantining, do you have any research to talk about how that could change your microbiome in the body? I know you talked well, about hospitals being changed around and stuff, but what about the impact of staying away from the working, you know, being home all the time, basically, quarantining 24-7? Like, what type of impact does that have for the processes of the microbiome and how it impacts us? Well, I haven't read any studies on it, but from what I know about how to take care of yourself and cultivate your microbiome, it's definitely best to get outside, even with a mask on. Go outside, get some fresh air, look at the sky, feel the warmth of the sun or the coolness of the breeze, connect with your feet on the ground, know that you're outside and really be outside and be present with it. And, and take nice deep breaths. If you can get into a space where you don't have to wear a mask, then even better. So being outside is really important. And then keeping the indoor environment so that there is good uh, air circulation is very important as well. I mean, one of the reasons it's important to open the windows and, and let in some fresh air is because of that exchange that we need to have with the outside world with, with microbes. So um, it's definitely important to, to continue to, to do that, even if we're in a situation where we're quarantined or, or everything's shut down or whatever. It's good for your mental well-being and it's good for your microbiome. And then we're washing our hands a lot too. So um, that can actually break down the bonds between the microbial communities that protect the skin. So in the book, I talk about this. I talk about the skin, not incredibly extensively, but enough to give everyone an idea that the skin has microbes on it that also need to have prebiotics. So um, in Ayurvedic medicine, there is a lot of oil that's put on the skin. Um, we do a lot of oil massage and use oil for moisturizer instead of lotions that have additives and things like that because sesame oil, coconut oil, any, any whole oil, I'm not talking about vegetable oils like uh, canola oil and things like that, but oils that are really good that you would like to eat or, or really good quality massage oils are, are good like prebiotics for the probiotics on your skin. So in the midst of all the hand washing, when you have the time to nourish your skin with something whole and um, scrumptious for those little critters, it's good to apply that on a regular basis. And then not being around other people all the time, of course, is going to minimize our exposure 
to an exchange of microbes. So I'm sure there will be studies done on, on this. I'm sure there are a lot of uh, microbiologists that are really interested in, in finding more out about how this is impacting everyone's microbiome. Well, what really intrigues me about this is just thinking about something that's been around as a practice for thousands of years and then combining that with our modern knowledge of science and then utilizing that. Here's your book, and I think it's phenomenal what you're, what you're highlighting. It's an area that I'm not very familiar with, and I'm sure most of our audience has heard about different things, but to actually think of it in terms mm -hmm. of an actual practical application, I think that's what's exciting about having you on the show to talk about this. Let me ask you this. Talk about, I've had some friends over the years that are real big with natural deodorants instead of using the kind that you'd get at the grocery store or at a, a right. Walgreens or something. And I wanted to see if you could talk a little about that and how that applies to uh, cultivating your own microbiome. Yeah, because um, the natural deodorants are going to be preferable over more of a like pharmaceutical over-the-counter manufactured um, deodorant or antiperspirant because if you look at the ingredients on any product if it has things in it that are designed to preserve the product what that means is that they are antimicrobial and so when you apply that to your skin you can be essentially over time totally changing the landscape of the skin for those microbes and you could be actually changing the diversity of the microbiome um, in the armpit or changing the balance or the health of the microbiome in the armpit and by doing that it can actually create a body odor a stronger body odor in the long run that's interesting. What would you recommend mm -hmm. to people who are, to individuals who are interested in wanting to switch out for uh, a healthy alternative to deodorant without it affecting their hygiene habits? I know there are companies that are actually using microbial probiotic sprays. So wow. that can be an option. Yep. I haven't tried one yet myself, but um, I would say to just Go on the internet and search microbiome deodorant, and you'll find all kinds of options for anywhere from products that are probably um, advertising that they have prebiotics in their formulation that are microbiome healthy to, pro to products that are what I just said, actual microbes. Looking at the, the body and its immune system response, what steps do you suggest we should take in terms of the foods that would, I guess, create a better microbiome for us compared to those that would do the opposite, take away from it and make it so, harder to create a healthy, balanced microbiome? Right. So anything that's processed, packaged, pre-prepared that you just stick in the oven or from the freezer or whatever, those all, they usually have some kind of preservative added to them. So those are things that you want to veer away from. What I encourage people to do if they're not already doing this is to incorporate at least 30 different plant foods into their diet a week. And you'd be surprised how many you're probably already eating if you start counting even today. So 
plant foods can be, as I said, fruits, vegetables, grains, legumes, beans. They're all really great food for the microbiome. Herbs, if you're eating whole herbs, like you put the cilantro or parsley or rosemary on things, all food for the microbiome. So that's a really good way to start um, feeding your micro. And if you find that you're not close to that 30, then just add a couple of things each week. You don't have to just go out and start eating 50 things a week right off the bat, because then you're probably going to end up with some gas and bloating, and it'll be an uncomfortable transition until the colonies that digest that type of fiber are able to grow. So you want to do it slowly and, and, you know, do everything in moderation at a pace that's comfortable for you, but definitely adding those, um, those diversity of plant foods. Now, notice I'm not saying eliminate anything. The only thing I'm saying to decrease really is, is the processed foods. The other interesting point about the microbiome is that the one in the gut recognizes the shift in seasons and it changes based on the season and based on what foods are naturally going to occur at that time of year. So becoming more familiar with your area and your local farmer's market and what foods are naturally occurring at the time of year that we're in is also going to be beneficial for the microbiome. That's really interesting. What are what are short-chain fatty acids, and how do they apply to developing microbiome, like the large intestine, for example? I know that's one part of the body and the digestive system that you talk about in your book. Right, right. So the microbes in the large intestine, they break down the fiber that we can't digest with our own enzymes. They break it down for us. And they turn it into these things called short-chain fatty acids. And I use butyrate as an example in the book. So butyrate is this uh, beautiful substance that has a myriad of applications in our body to keep us healthy. And it helps with um, the inflammation response. And it also helps to feed the um, epithelial cells that line the large intestine. So we eat fiber that we can't break down. The microbiome in our gut breaks it down for us, and then it feeds our own human cells with the substances it manufactures as a result. So it's like this beautiful hmm. process. And there are a lot of things that are like that with the microbiome, like it manufactures vitamins and um, it also is responsible for a ton of, of enzymatic uh, production. So our, our pancreas secretes like 17 enzymes and the microbiome is like hundreds. It's really fascinating. That is very fascinating. Uh, looking at your book in chapter three, you talk about, well, you call it quite simply poop. <laughs> how it looks, what yeah. it means. And one of the things I found that was interesting with that chapter is your subheading poop as medicine. And yeah. with all jokes aside, I wanted to see if you could get, give us a little background on that because most of us don't think of those type of things when we think about number two. And I wanted to see if you could sure. talk about it in, in, in reference within your book and why it's important to recognize the importance of that side of our lives, I guess you could say. Okay. Yeah. 
Well, poop is a huge diagnostic tool for any practitioner of any type of medicine. Um, but in Eastern medicine, we really focus on it because what the stool looks like and the whole quality of how you feel during the digestive process gives us an enormous amount of information about what's going on inside your body, including what's happening with your microbiome. So poop as medicine goes back quite far in the Chinese tradition. The first recorded instance of anyone using stool as a medicinal substance is from the Chinese pharmacopoeia. And there was a doctor called Ge Hong, and he concocted this decoction called yellow soup. And he used it to treat dysentery. And what that entailed was basically taking the stool of a healthy individual and turning it into a drinkable substance that the person who was suffering with dysentery would consume orally. And there were very positive benefits from this. It would potentially cure the person of the dysentery. So a long time ago, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, we knew that there was something about our something in healthy a healthy person's stool that could help to cure various ailments. There was another Chinese doctor after him that that used stool to cure even nausea and and vomiting. So um, of course it went out of vogue after some time, but there are other instances throughout history where we've utilized it and. Now we found that using um, what's called uh, fecal, micro, fecal transplants um, can cure C. diff infections. So um, C. difficile is a, is a microbe that can grow um, too much in the body, usually if somebody's consumed a lot of antibiotics. And um, it can be picked up in hospitals, and it's a really um, difficult organism to treat because the more antibiotics you give, the worse it can make the person. And it creates diarrhea to the point where it can kill you. And so fecal my microbiota transplantation is an actual medicinal cure for C. diff infection at this point. And... Um, I, I believe the main way that it's administered, like in the hospital um, in the United States, is through, they probably give you a colonoscopy and inject some up there, or they would take a syringe and inject. It's, it's not sterilized um, stool from a healthy donor, but it's gone through so that they've hopefully taken out or identified if there's any pathogenic microbes in there. Um, they won't use it. They'll, they'll only use stool for, from people that the stool has been really well screened. And it can be a complete cure for C. diff. And I know that there are um, some clinics that are like down in the Caribbean, for example, where people will fly down there and they'll get dried stool in capsules. They'll start their treatment down there and then bring it back. And it can cure, like I listened to a podcast um, recently of a gal who was, she felt fine. And then she ended up with all of these um, symptoms. Like she had a very strong sensitivity to light and she was having trouble connecting with other people in conversation. And 
there was some social awkwardness there and she was having some other things going on, some digestive problems and whatnot. And she did this, she did this, um, this stool transplantation and she has none of it anymore. And she feels like a completely different person. She experiences life in a completely different way. And um, there are many anecdotal situations that I've heard about that or read about. And so there are a lot of potential applications for that in the future, but right now it's only approved for the treatment of C. difficile and the doctor that wants to um, administer that treatment needs to get special permission in order to do so. That's really interesting. It's a lot. It's, it's a whole area of study that very few of us focus on or understand. That's why it's great to talk about these different things because you can at least be exposed and aware of them if it you know, comes up at a conversation, you'll say, oh, I know what C. difficile is. <laughs> I know how it's treated. It's treated rather interesting. <laughs> yes, um, it is. Let me ask you this. What are biofilms? I know you talk about that in this chapter as well, and I want to see if you could just explain their importance to our, to our audience based on how you yeah. discussed it in, in terms of the biodome. So biofilms are absolutely fascinating. Biofilms are made by the microbes that live in or on the body or other surfaces. And biofilms are like, a, I, I envision them as like this dome that kind of shields the whole community. So it can, for example, if there's a biofilm shielding a benefit, or I'm sorry, a pathogenic community in the gut, it can shield it from antibiotics, for example. Um, and so these biofilms are constructed to protect the members of the microbial community, and they also function as communication vectors between individuals in the community. Um, there are nutrient pathways that run through these biofilms so that everybody gets fed. It's quite fascinating. And biofilms have, they're, they're most well known by the people who have heard of them as kind of a negative trait of bacteria colonization. So usually we'll, when we're talking about biofilms, we're talking about them as the protective shield that will encapsulate um, a Lyme infection, for example, so that it makes it really hard to treat. But there is some evidence that biofilms are also physiologically important in many instances and that they may have a role to play in protecting the integrity of mucosal lining and the, and the gut wall um, and, and may have some role to play in, in, um, in our immunity as well. So it's kind of like, we don't know all of the information we can about it yet, but like many things in nature, like pretty much everything in nature, there's a yin and a yang mm -hmm. aspect. There's, there's what we can view as a negative or a positive about it. And that seems to be the case with biofilms as well. I want to ask you about the discovery of the organ in the stomach called the mesentery. And if you could explain mm. that to our audience and, and how, it, how that actually is something that's been studied for quite some time in ancient medicine. Right. So when I was in Chinese medicine school, we learned about this organ it's, it's, it's a structure in Chinese physiology, and it's called the Muiwen, and it means membrane source. 
And there was a lot of speculation as to what it could actually be, but many people had surmised that it was the mesentery and the omentum and all of that tissue that surrounds the gut in the abdomen. And the only thing that's known about it really from a Western medicine standpoint, or at least what was known about it at the time that I was in school, was that it anchored the organs in the gut. So it anchored everything to the wall of the thorax. So, so that was it. But from the Chinese perspective, the Mo Yuan was this really cool structure that um, housed what we call lingering pathogens or lurking pathogens. And so, um, you know, it was, it's one of these things even just like chi, like if you've heard of chi or prana, there are many different um, types of chi. And it turns yeah. out that many of the types of chi are actually describing many of the functions of the microbiome. And so with the mesentery, I equate that in the book to the Moyuan because in 2017, it was recognized as a separate organ in Western medicine. And as a separate organ, its function, of course, was that structure function of kind of anchoring everything in the abdominal cavity, but also started to get recognized as a major thoroughfare through which everything that passes in or out of the gut wall, it goes through the mesentery. And um, scientists are finding that it actually has a role to play in the transportation of cells and substances from one part of the body to the other. So in that sense, it's very fascinating. And part of the reason I was so fascinated by it is because I feel like if there are researchers that are open to um, not just this concept, but others in Chinese and Ayurvedic medicine, that it might help to direct their research a little bit. So as I mentioned in the Chinese tradition, we talk about how there can be lingering pathogens that hide out in the gut. And they're, they're not hiding like in the, in the gut, they're hiding in that area of the body in the moyuan or in the mesentery. And that when the person gets run down or uh, the pathogen grows to a point where it creates an infection, then we see the symptoms of that infection. Um, and it may not be right when the person caught the pathogen, but it, it can be sometimes later. And so some people will talk about how, for example, herpes viruses, chicken pox, they're retroviruses, and that that can be a description of a latent pathogen. And Latent pathogens can get stuck pretty much anywhere in the body, as we know with, for example, Lyme and its co-infections, but the main like nexus, the main area that we can really focus on to help um, prevent that from happening and to, and to eradicate that from the body is by treating the, the mesentery or the MOUN. You also talk about the Senjiao, if I'm saying that right, <laughs> J-I-A. Mm -hmm. J-I-A-O, yep. Sanjiao. And I wanted to see if you could talk about that organ as well, because that's something else that right. you bring so up. So the mesentery is a, Absolutely. So the mesentery is a structure that 
is connected to the organ of the Sanjiao. So the Sanjiao is an actual organ in Chinese medicine. And it's, it's called Sanjiao because it means three burners, if you translate it quite literally. But if you translate it based upon its, um, its physiological representation, it means three environments. So there's three main environments in the body, and this happens to coincide with the three areas in Ayurvedic medicine, the doshas, and uh, where the doshas reside in the body, I should say. So the sanjiao, the upper jiao is the environment of the lungs and that whole part of the body above the diaphragm. And the middle jiao is the environment of the small intestine, stomach, that whole area. And then underneath where we have the deeper organs in the body or the, the more protected organs in the body and where we have the large intestine is the lower jowl or the lower environment. And these three environments are very different. So the lower jowl is considered more like a ditch or a drainage area. And if you think about the large intestine and fecal matter building up, it is like a drainage ditch. And then the middle jowl is the area that's responsible for more of the churning and chemical reactions that have to do with the metabolism and food. And then the upper jowl has to do a lot with the gas, gas exchange in the body and with respiration. And that that environment, that atmosphere is considered to be more misty. And that makes perfect sense because we have such a warm, humid environment in the lungs. So the Sanjiao is the organ. And then the Moyuan is the structure that's in communication with that organ. And there, like I talked about, the research is showing that cells can travel from one area of the body to the other using the mesentery and using the Sanjiao. And so um, the Sanjiao in Western medicine has recently been recognized as the interstitium. And this is really an interesting thing because this interstitium is something that, is, of course, has been there all along. Any body worker who's done like craniosacral or energy work knows that there's something else going on there that fluids are moving through and you can feel it in your hands. So, and the person on the table can feel it too. And so this interstitium is all of the connective tissue and the fluid filled areas between those sheaths of tissue. And it wasn't observable because um, people weren't looking for it. Right. So like if you have a cadaver and you're looking at different organs and different tissues, you can't see the interstitium because the person needs to be alive and everything needs to be flowing in it in order for it to be observed. And so for whatever reason, it finally got observed like in the last like year or two. And so um, that's also an area of research. And what is its function and um, how does it? How, how does it play a role in communication between the different areas of the body and information transfer? Um, so 
that's another really fascinating topic. And it has to do with the microbiome as well. It it seems like such an unexplored area. There's like so much to, to, to learn and be exposed to and understand. That's what I find exciting about this area of study. I, um, I want to ask you, you talk about the gut-brain axis as part of your discussion, I guess, regarding the interdependency of the brain and the digestive tract. And I wanted to see if you could talk to our audience a little about that and explain what you mean when you call it the gut-brain axis. Right. So there are many different connections in the body between the microbiome and a part of the body. So there's a lung microbiome, large intestine axis. There's a lung, I'm sorry, there's a, and then there's the gut-brain axis. And so what that means is that there's like a direct link between the function of the brain and the function of the gut. And what a lot of uh, researchers are now describing is not just calling it the gut-brain axis, but calling it the gut-brain microbiome axis. Because we know that we have all these neurons in the brain. We know that. And we know that we have the enteric nervous system in the gut. And for years, we've been calling the gut the second brain. But really, the gut is like the first brain, in a sense, because it's the most primordial brain. And the microbes that are in the gut communicate through various pathways directly with the brain. And when they do that, they're telling the brain, you're safe, or you're not safe, or please feed me some chicken, (laughs) or whatever it is, (laughs) or there may be like an overgrowth of candida and telling your brain, I want sugar. So the gut is sending signals to the brain. And then the brain is responding to those signals and altering our behavior and altering our physiology based upon that. And so the brain if it perceives any kind of danger, for example, before the gut does, it will send that signal to the gut. And then the gut will like, the, the body will, will kind of shut down in the front because it, the sympathetic nervous system has been activated and we know that we're supposed to brace for some sort of something that, to occur. Or the brain can tell the gut you're okay, you're okay, you're okay. But it's when the, when the gut is sending the signal, when the microbes in the gut are sending the signal to the brain that we're in danger and we're not, that that's a, that's a big problem because that can cause us to feel anxious and unsettled um, and just have a general sense of unease. And people will describe this a lot, like they'll, they'll have an illness for example, and then afterwards, they just don't feel right for the longest time. And it can be because there's some dysbiosis or, or some kind of a disturbance to the gut microbiome or to the way that the gut is communicating with the brain. So it's really important that we are giving attention to our digestion and to our microbiome, especially in the gut, because not only does it affect the well-being of our body, but if it affects whether we feel well or not, mentally and emotionally. I can understand that. I, I'm looking at your book, too, and it talks about staying away from refined sugar. <laughs> One of the things I happen to find as part of my normal pr- 
previous diet, I should say. I've been taking some big steps on isolating sugar from my diet. I just wanted to see if you could share with our audience why refined sugar is so bad for the body and bad for creating a balanced microbiome. So, you know, everything that we consume has some effects on the body, right? And a little bit of things here and there is not really a big deal. But when you have something over and over and over again that is not beneficial, then that's when change can result for the not for the better so like with with refined white sugar there are many reasons that it's not good for us on a regular basis one is that it increases inflammation in the body another is that it feeds some of the more pathogenic strains of microorganisms in the gut and another is that it it messes with our blood sugar of course and if we have refined white sugar on a regular basis, it's like it's like a, a violent hit to the pancreas, really. And so it's not something that um, is great for us to consume on a regular basis. You know, everything in moderation. Um, more natural sugars like maple syrup or honey they have substances in them that are actually food for the microbes in the gut, the, the beneficial microbes in the gut. Um, so if we're going to consume anything, like if it says it's refined, that means it's been processed and it's been stripped of substances we may not even know it can, the original form of it contains. It can be stripped of minerals. It can be stripped of many different things. And so by stripping something down where you're taking all of the food for the microbes in your gut out of it, you're just giving your body like something that isn't actually nourishing for it. It's not nourishing. It might be food, but it's not feeding you. If that makes sense. Well, I can understand that. I know we're running low on time. How fast this goes by these interviews. Fly I know. By, I swear. <laughs> I want to I want to tell you how excited I was to have you back on because you are a returning guest of mine and I want to ask you if you I, I'm going to share the information obviously for your website BridgetShea.com uh-huh. and I have the information for Inner Traditions to list uh, and as part of our notes to the show I wanted to ask you what do you have coming up is there anything you want to share with our audience about stuff you might have coming up or things you'd like to share about yourself. Yeah, so I have regular um, dietary resets or cleanses, if you want to call it that, in the sp- in the spring and in the fall. So we just started our fall one, and then we'll have another one in the spring. And those are rooted in Ayurvedic cleansing practices, but I incorporate all of this wisdom from the recent research on the microbiome into the cleanse as well. So it's a really nice marriage of the two different systems of East and West. And then um, on October 30th, I am doing a 21 day Ayurvedic lifestyle challenge. And basically the lifestyle principles that we are going to incorporate are those that help to cultivate a healthy microbiome. And they're rooted again in ancient wisdom, but they're very practical for today. And they're things that um, <clears throat> that have been recently confirmed by Western research studies 
to be beneficial for the microbiome in the gut. So um, those are things that uh, that I have on a regular basis. I'll be rerunning that 21-day cultivating your microbiome challenge on a regular basis. And the first one's going to start October 30th. That's great. I just want to ask you one last thing. Ageless cleanse. I saw that on your site. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, that's the cleanse. That's that Ayurvedic lifestyle reset. That's in that last chapter in the book, but it's not, it's, it's a very, it's much more involved than what's in the book because I personally lead it. It's not like you're just buying a kit and getting a workbook or a video. I am interacting with you the entire two weeks that we do it. And so I'm able to alter it for each person's constitution and how their digestion is functioning. And we learn all about the stool types that I talk about in the book. And we watch that change throughout the course of those two weeks. And we learn about tongue diagnosis and how the tongue changes when we change our diet and our lifestyle as well. And we'll do some of the, we'll do some of that in the 21 day challenge too. Bridget, I just want to thank you for coming on the show and sharing your new book with us. I think that everything we've just discussed is just so encouraging for anyone who's interested in wanting to take a, take a hold of their health and really look at ancient Chinese principles and how you've been able to lay it out for us in cultivating your microbiome. I think it sounds like such a great opportunity. I encourage my audience to check your book out. I, uh, thank you. Want to? Yeah. I just want, do you have any, um, Speaking engagements coming up. I know with COVID, it's kind of distorted some things. Uh, aside from the stuff you have going on, is there anything coming up in 2021 you want to mention or anything else you'd like to share? I just started, you know, um, introduce that to our audience. Yeah. So 2021, what have I got? Well, you know, there might be a mind body soul expo. I might be in a virtual conference um, out of Australia. Got some magazine articles coming out. Um, everything's going to be on my website, actually, the BridgetShea.com site. If you go to the calendar or events, you'll find that all of that stuff is listed there. Well, excellent. I want to thank you so much for coming on today, and I'm excited to hear about additional books and opportunities as they come out with you in the future. Please keep us posted because this is definitely something that I think our audience can gain a lot of knowledge and and opportunity from just having you on our show. It's such a pleasure of ours. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. (laughs) I appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. You have a good day. Thank you. I just want to thank Bridget Shea for coming on to the show. She's a returning guest and I want to thank Inner Traditions, her publisher, for providing uh, her information and, and linking us up. As we look at 2020, passing by, coming towards our last quarter of the year, a lot of us have seen the importance of taking care of our own health and having the ability of, I guess you could say, being stewards of our own metabolism, our own emotional and physical uh, health. And just in general, I think turning to, to Ayurvedic and Chinese practices are definitely something that can help us change our paradigm. Too many of us are reliant on fast food, processed foods, things that aren't the best things for us. Uh, In the last two years, myself, after I had my cancer scare, I lost 50 pounds. And part of my doing that was switching up the script, changing my paradigm, 
and looking at nutrition and taking it seriously. I highly recommend Bridget Shea's book. I find it such a pleasure to have her on the show. Her knowledge of Ayurvedic and Chinese practices are unparalleled. So check out her book at BridgetShea.com. I will have her information included within our, our show notes so you can look at those. And if anyone would like to reach out to her, as I said, you can reach out to her directly at www.bridgetshea.com. And uh, I want to thank each of you for tuning into this episode. We will be having more stuff coming up. So if anyone would like to reach out to me directly and, and have any questions about the content of our show programming or anything like that, you can reach out to me, info at the letter D, socialpsychicradio.com. You can also check us out on social media. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Social Psychic Radio Show. Don't forget to join us for another episode next time. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes. You can also check us out on Facebook, and don't forget to visit the Social Psychic YouTube channel. Until next time, it's a big world out there. Keep an open mind, embrace your paradigms, and know that the universe is always yours to explore. Are you looking for that perfect gift to express your appreciation for your loved one or bestie? Well, look no further. Royal Susie offers one-of-a-kind designs with genuine high-quality crystals, stones, and the most precious of metals that are guaranteed to satisfy the urges of your inner king or queen. Each piece is handcrafted with love and is sure to inspire and captivate all. Indulge yourself by visiting Royal Susie's website at www.royalsusie.com for splendid items like agate bookends, impressively crystal-studded bottle stoppers, and beautifully handcrafted nightlights that will charm every room in your home. Royal Susie's featured collections will truly delight your guests and always make them feel welcome. Any questions? Contact Royal Susie directly by email at royalsusiedesigns at yahoo.com. With the Baker's Plus Card, it's easy to get lower than low prices for the win. Earn fuel points on every purchase and save up to a dollar a gallon at the pump. The Baker's Plus Card. All you do is win. Big, big savings. Sign up now at bakersplus.com and start saving. Bakers, fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Bakers, fresh for everyone. Hi, I'm Lessa Cadet, host of her Extraordinary Life by Design podcast, where we celebrate women who are shaping their lives one extraordinary day at a time. I speak with women from all over the world about what they do and how they are passionately pursuing their dreams and creating meaningful impacts on their communities. So come join us and learn about all there is to learn about these extraordinary women. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. 
Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.